Uh, we're in a series that I'm, I'm calling Welcome Home, and it's, it's an introduction into really the mission and the values of what make Oikos move and what makes us strong. And it's based on our mission. Our mission is to see people deeply transformed by God's grace through the gospel of King Jesus in Memphis to the ends of the earth. And we've been really focusing on how are people changed, how are they formed. And we've talked about how formation is inevitable. Everybody is formed, I mean, from the moment that we're conceived and we grow and we live and we're constantly changing and being formed. There's a couple of factors that really help with this. Reed, can you put up the how are we formed? At the center of our formation is story. It's the stories that we believe, the truths that we believe. And then that informs a sense of our own identity. Now, I'm just focusing on these two today. We've talked about the Holy Spirit, kind of how he's changed the environment. We've talked about the gospel, how the gospel story is the story that, that is really the mechanism for our transformation. But today we're going to talk about this sense of self. Go to the next one, read. And here at Oikos, we call it renewed identity. So what do we mean by renewed identity? I'm really excited to tell you. Um, in Colossians chapter 3 is our text today. Um, but let me set the stage with a big question about what, what is identity. Uh, even when we were taking the table today, we had a couple of uh, little girls, nine years old, Liza's six, seven-ish. Dad is just nodding. Yeah, one of those. Um, and that question of identity is somewhat unfamiliar, and so it's, it's, it's helpful to kind of have a handle on what we mean when we're talking about identity. Identity, I think, is one of the most important questions that anybody can ask, because it's, it's who you are. It's, it's these two. It's who am I and am I worthy? So what I mean by who am I, it's who am I when I'm at church? Who am I when I'm at work? Who am I when I'm sleeping? Who is the me that's consistent in all those places? The, the durable sense of self. That's, that's half of identity. But the other half is like, and how do I feel about myself in all those places? How do I feel when I'm under pressure or when I fail to perform or when I'm doing really well? Identity is this durable sense of self and our sense of self-worth. And of course, this is tied to happiness. Because who we are and how we feel about ourselves really informs um, our sense of joy and, and happiness. And so those two questions are going to be in the background. And I think this is the most important question that anybody can ask today for two reasons. One reason is because if you're just reading Scripture, Scripture is an identity formation book. Christianity is an identity formation belief system, religion, way of life. It, identity is central to Christianity. And the other reason it's important is because identity is central to our cultural kind of ethos. It's central to Christianity, but it's also central to culture. Whether or not we know it, that's basically what a culture does, is that it forms and shapes the identity of its people. It forms and shapes us. And so, uh, one, one book on identity that I really liked um, he says this, nothing is more important than knowing who you are and acting accordingly. But the problem is that it's harder to know who you are today than at any other point in human history. That's a pretty big claim. Why is identity harder today? I think it's because we're at basically a crossroads of how identity formation happens. We're, we're living in, in the crossover. Some of you have... You may have been born into a different era, but now you're stepping into the new era. And I'm using two words that I'm borrowing from. Uh, I think this is, I mean, if you were to guess, you'd probably say he's probably borrowing from Tim Keller. 
I, th- I think that's who I'm borrowing from on these words. He's got a book called Making Sense of God that's got two chapters on identity that are just really excellent. Let me, let me talk through these. This is part of what is happening. The shift is making this, this difficult. The shift is from, in the traditional sense, outside in. That is, you look around you and you say, well, that's who they say I am. That's who I have to become. But the modern identity... It says, I look inside myself, and then I look out and tell them who I am. It's completely inverted. Keep going. The next one here, Read The traditional identity looks to institutional authority. So it's things like your, your family, your school. It's your government. Um, military was a major identity-forming center in traditional identity. On the other hand, instead of institutional authority, modern identity is highly suspicious of institutions, and it looks to individual authority. It looks to the self as the sense of authority. No one can tell you on the outside who you are on the inside. That's that's the shift that's happened. Next one. The traditional identity says you need to fulfill your duties. This is what it means to be a son in our family. This is what it means to be a citizen of this country. This is what it means. My dad, he's wrapping up 42 years with the same company. He started there when he was 20 years old. He just stayed. And he's worked for the institution all his life. And it's like, nobody's doing that anymore. <laughs> he knows it. Every, everybody is just constantly shifting from one institution to another, to another, to another. Because it's, it's no longer institutional. It's moved to individual, but it's no longer duty. It's about our desires. Desire is far more important. Next one. Um, the traditional identity seeks to discover the truth and then conform to it. Whereas the modern identity seeks to create your truth. And then assert it. Next one, read. Last one on each. Uh, basically, this is kind of the summary. That the worth in the validation, that, that who, who am I? Am I worth it? it? That comes from outside yourself. It comes from your parents. It comes from your nation. Who, you know, it's the medals of honor. It's the degrees that you have. That's how you know who you are in the traditional identity. No more. It's, it's the opposite. It comes from your inner self. And so the way to know who you really are is to pursue authenticity and to follow your heart. Um, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute. Okay, now this is kind of technical and you're like, well, am I just reading a textbook up here? Like, all right, let me, let me make it a little more approachable using Elsa, okay? Elsa, Natalie, are you in here? All right, I was gonna call on you to sing, but then I was like, I don't need to do that to her. If you know it, sing along, okay? Remember the song, Let It Go? Yes. Everybody, yes. She says, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal, don't feel, don't let them know. In the film, she's actually wearing dark clothes. She has like a cloak, like a head covering. And she's talking in terms very much like a traditional identity. Like, here are the expectations of everybody around me. But then what does she do? She throws it off, and this is what she sings. Let it go. Can't hold it back anymore. I don't care what they're going to say. And then she finds her new self, right? She finds these brilliant, dazzling clothes that are a little more revealing than the old ones. And she finds her new identity, and then she says, I want to sing it. I can't. Here I stand. Can you, Natalie, can you do that one? Just the one phrase, here I stand. Yes, that's it. Thank you. 
And then she's, she's liberated. She's liberated to go be herself. But what happens to Elsa? You see, she's crushed under the weight of external expectations. Because for her, she has these high royal expectations. And she has no parents. They passed away, uh, I think, in a tragic um, boating accident. Yes. That's not funny, guys. She lost her parents. And, and in a traditional identity, this is crushing. Because if you're relying on mom and dad to tell you who you are, and mom and dad aren't around anymore, it's, it's a heavy weight. And when you have high expectations, and, and you're set up for royalty, and the institution of government is saying, I mean, do you see what people in, in royalty are doing in the UK now? They're just like, nah, thanks. I'm, I'm going to America. They're just abdicating royal responsibility because we've shifted from traditional modern just like Elsa. But what happens with Elsa is that even when she finds her freedom and she lets it go and here I stand, then she, she's still destroying the people around her. It's crippling. It's fragmenting. It's crushing. So either way, she's broken and lost. I think this really kind of helps paint a picture of the identity crisis that I, I think we're living in. Where can I stand? Where can I stand? Traditional identity, I can look to my mom and dad. I can look to my institutions. I can look outside myself to figure out who I am. But every one of us knows that our institutions and our families are all broken and sinful. Every one of them, without exception. And so we turn to the modern identity and I say, well, look in myself. That's how I'm going to discover who I really am. But what we soon discover is that every one of us in our hearts is broken and sinful. We are not reliable identities kind of forming people. We're broken. So what do we do? Where do we go? We look out and it fails us. We look in and we fail us. Did you know that the mental health crisis peaks in countries with like the highest affluence? There, there's this proportion of countries that tell people you can do and be whatever you want to be with anxiety. It's just, it's crushing. We weren't made to bear the weight of self-salvation in identity. So where do we go? What do we do? Where, where can I stand? This is where Colossians 3 comes in. All of us, we can say, I am what I do. I am what I have. I am what I desire. I am what other people think of me. But every one of those is going to fail us at some point because they're all broken, because we're all broken. But in Colossians chapter 3, page 1017, he doesn't say look out. He doesn't say look in. He says look up. Let's read this, this together. He says, since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above. On things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. Not on earthly things. He's saying our, our hearts they set the trajectory of our life. So as you're aiming them, don't aim out and look at who they tell you you are. Don't aim in and try to figure out who you think you are. He says, look up where Christ is. Next, next phrase here, read. He says, you've been raised with Christ. Now this is a weird phrase. Because he's talking to people who were very much just like sitting in a church. Somebody's reading Paul's mail. They're just normal people. But he says, resurrection has already happened in you. It's a, it's a weird thing. When, when did this happen? How did this happen, Paul? 
If you, if you flip over a page before um, in our Bibles, in Colossians chapter 2, he says it happened when you were buried with him in baptism. He says that's when you were also raised with him. So when, when you're baptized, you're raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and the uncir- uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ and he forgave us all our sins. So something happened, he says to these people, when you were baptized. He says you, you go down into the grave and then you're raised up with him. It's this miracle of resurrection. And so if you've been raised with Christ... You take on the identity of Christ. Next phrase. He says, look at all these highlighted phrases. Can you, I'm colorblind, so I struggle with colors. Can you see all of those times that Christ is alluded to? Marcus can see them. It says, you are with Christ, and you're where Christ is, and you're when Christ is. You're already raised with Christ, and when he comes back in glory, you're going to be with him then too. So it's it's past and present and future. It's it's all the, the W questions. When and where and why. And it's Christ. Christ is all here. Christ, um, where he is. Uh, Next phrase, read. So then he says, uh, verse 3, For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. He's talking to people who were just right in front of him. He's like, you're dead. You're dead. What does he mean? He said, "When when you surrender and you pledge allegiance to the king, the crucified king, you, you, you give up yourself. Your, your life, your, what we are using the phrase identity. You give up yourself and it, it dies. There's a, a really great uh, passage in Galatians chapter 2 where Paul, same guy who's writing this letter, he, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. So the life that I now live in in the body and the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and he gave himself for me. You die. Now, instead of looking inside to figure out who you are, he says, you look at Christ to figure out who you are. Next phrase. You died and your life is now hidden with, with Christ. In God. And when Christ who is your life appears, you'll also appear with him in glory. So, what, what does this mean? This is, this is the doctrine of union with Christ. That we are joined with him. That what's true of him becomes true of us. Do you remember the story of uh, David and Goliath? Little boy David, he goes out and he realizes that this um, evil giant is taunting his people day after day after day. And David, he's like, why is anybody doing anything about this? And then David actually goes out and fights the giant on behalf of all the people. I don't know if you know this, but David's village is the next village over. If somebody doesn't take care of this, his family is going to be killed. His farm is going to be laid waste. Somebody's got to do something here, and they need to do it quickly. David says, I'll do it. And then what happens to David is that his victory is then shared with his people's victory. He's he's the champion. He's the representative. What's true of him is true of them. This is the doctrine of of union with Christ. That what's true of Christ's victory over the evil giant Satan is true of those who are in Christ. Those who have been crucified with him and those who have died with him. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of us when he looks at us. Isn't that incredible? 
that he looks at us and he doesn't see our own failures. He sees the accomplishments of our king. But there's another sense here about life. It's not just that it's doctrinally true. It's that he actually then changes your life to start reflecting that reality. You've, you've got to kind of go live into that victory. He is your life. I, I, I love this language, that he is, he is your life. Um, there was a, a, a woman, I was, it's a book by Keller. Um, <laughs> he, he said, I, I met this woman named Sally, and she had, let's see how he put it. I met a woman named Sally who had the misfortune of being born beautiful. Uh, this woman, she used her beauty to get men, and then later, men used her beauty against her. And she found herself repeatedly and locked in to abusive relationships. And so she's, she's talking with Keller, her pastor, and she says, men were my alcohol. Only if I was on a man's arm could I face life and feel good about myself. You see, that's, that's her identity. I, I need to be loved by men. I am what that man thinks of me. I, it's this codependent dependency on a, another person's love. And so she went to a counselor, and the counselor says, look, you're looking to men for your identity, for your salvation. And the counselor says, you don't need to look to men for your identity. Why don't you go get a career? That will really help with your self-esteem. But this woman had enough kind of sense to realize you're asking me to exchange, this is her, her words, I was being advised to give up a common female idolatry and to take on a common male idolatry. She said, I didn't want to have my self-worth dependent on career success any more than on men. I wanted to be free. And so she came across Colossians 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear with him in glory. She came to realize that neither men nor career nor anything else should be her life or her identity. What mattered was not what men thought of her or career success, but what Christ had done for her and how he loved her. So when she saw a man who was interested in her, she would silently say in her heart to herself, you may turn out to be a great guy, maybe even a great husband, but you can never be my life. Only Christ is my life. Do you see how identity is informed now by the truth of the gospel? This is gospel identity. And your thing may not be to be loved by a man or to be loved by a woman or to have a successful career, but we've all got the thing that competes for the center spot in our identity formation. Only Christ is your life. I want to do two, two case studies here. Um, next phrase here. This is where a lot of this kind of takes center shape. He says, you've taken off the old self. It's already done. But the thing about identity is that it can't just be removed. It has to be replaced. You will center your life on something. And so he says you have to put on the new self, which is being renewed. Last phrase here, read in verse 10. It's being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Do you see the language of renewed? This is where we get the, this core value of renewed identity. That you are who God says you are. That it's received, not achieved. In one sense. In another sense, it is achieved, but it's achieved by the grace and the, the victory of what Jesus Christ has done. And then it's shared with you. you. 
You are who God says you are. You have this renewed identity. And so he says, step into it. Let's look at two case studies um, in this text. I've got to say, I'm a little nervous about these two case studies. The first one is sexual desire. The second one is ethnicity. And you're like, the straight white guy is going to talk about sex and ethnicity? Yes. Hold on. <laughs> Bear with me. Give me some grace. The first case study shows up in the next couple of verses in Colossians 3. It's this sexual desire piece. How does gospel identity inform what's true of us uh, sexually and, and what we want? He says, put to death, therefore, verse 5, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, put it to death. This is pretty strong language. All right, go to the list. Read. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Now, some of this is hidden in this language. But almost every one of these is a desire word. Now, the first, the first phrase, sexual immorality, means any sex outside of marriage. It's not just prostitution. It's any sex outside of, of marriage. That's sexual immorality. He says you have to put it to death. Kill it before it kills you. Put it to death. But then these other words, the impurity, the lust, it says evil desires, but the Greek doesn't actually have the word evil. It's, it's more like an over-desire. It's, it's a desire that's, that's just overly elevated. It's disproportional. You just have an overwhelming desire and greed. Now, normally we tie greed to money, but there are good commentators who are saying, no, this, this word's actually more general than that. It's just like this uh, inappropriate desire for more of something. And they think that all of these phrases are about sexual desire. These sexual desires, it says, are idolatry. Next phrase read, idolatry. Now, there's like a parallel passage in another letter to the same region that we call Ephesians. Same language. That the sexual desire, and, and yes, desire for money, that at its root, it's, it's an idol problem. You're like, we don't have any idols. What are you talking about? There's no statues here. But biblically, idolatry, you remember Exodus, where he gives them the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. The, idolatry is just the displacement of God as your centering identity. Identity and idolatry go hand in hand. Because if your identity is misplaced, it's, if it's wrongfully centered, it inevitably is idolatry. So how, how does this sexual idolatry show up. Now, I, most every Christian that I know, not all, that should be said, but most every Christian I know doesn't want to be a bigot. Most every Christian I know, and many are even willing to kind of rethink sexual ethics because we don't want to be a bigot, right? God wants us to be kind. He wants us to be loving. There's good reasons why this, this track of sexual desire um, is causing people to ask questions. But there's this phrase that shows up next that gives me caution. Paul says, because of these things, sexual desire that's disproportionate, that's, that's higher than it should be, or it just craves more, that this idolatry of sex, he says, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Now, wrath of God is quite a phrase, right? When's the last time you had a conversation about the wrath of God? Now, some of you are like, I love talking about the wrath of God. We need to have a conversation about that as well, I think. But not today. How do we understand wrath of God? It, 
Sometimes I think it can feel like God is almost like blindfolded, playing pin the tail on the sinner or something. He's just like, I hate that thing and not that thing. I love that thing. And I hate that thing. But that is not at all how the wrath of God is cast throughout Scripture. The, the wrath of God is a natural consequence of the decisions themselves. Let me kind of point to a, a parallel passage. This is, a, again, Paul writing a letter to the Romans. And he uses one of our, our phrases from this, this sentence. He calls it lust and desire and greed. He, he's using one of those words. It only occurs three times in the whole New Testament. One of them is in Romans 1. The other one is here. So there's a connection, and he connects it there to the wrath of God as well. What does he say about it? He says um, that God gives us over. Okay, so let me step out if I lost you. The, the biblical concept of the wrath of God is where God gives you over to the thing you're doing. It's, it's not arbitrarily, it's not capricious, it's not random. It's God saying, okay, you can have it your way. And in Romans chapter 1, the thing that he gives us over to is sexual desire that's disordered. Specifically, he connects it to female desire for other women and male sexual desire for other men. But commentators say, like Leon Morris, he says, Paul is not so much calling for a penalty in Romans 1 as thinking of sexual perversion as itself a penalty. Like it, it is its own consequence. The way he says it is being a sinner is the punishment of sin. Um, one translation, it translates it like this. They will forever enjoy the fitting wage of such perversion. Let me, let me say it another way. Maybe a, a way that's a little more approachable. Um, I think what he's saying when it comes to the wrath of God is that you have to kill it before it kills you. That there are some things in life that lead to death. Whether you know it or not, they, they do lead to death. And one of those things, one of those paths that leads to death is sexual desire that's disordered. No, a couple of clarifications. Am I saying that all sexual desire is bad? No, not at all. God created sexual desire and he designed it as a good gift. Am I saying that all sexual temptation is bad? No, not at all. Sexual temptation is not sin. Christ himself was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. Am I saying that sexual orientation is in view here? No, uh, again, Morris, he says, a person's sexual orientation, whether heterosexual or homosexual, is not the point at issue. What matters is what a person does with his sexuality. So, yes, sexual desire informs our identity, but it is not the center of our identity. Instead, let me say it like this, we do not conform our identity in Christ around our sexual desire. We conform our sexual desire around our identity in Christ. The thing that is more true of us, the thing that centers us, is Christ himself. Christ is your life. Now, this is really countercultural. And I, I know if you feel nervous for me right now, or you feel anxious because of what we're talking about in the room, that's because in our culture, desire is just elevated as the standard of authority. And I don't think it's a great standard. In our culture, we say things... So Shakespeare had this line, you know, 500 years ago or whenever he lived, where the fool in, in Shakespeare, the fool in Shakespeare says, to thine own self be true. And our culture's like, that seems like wisdom. 
We say, you do you. Follow your heart. Be true to yourself. Just do it. Speak your truth. And on and on and on. But maybe my favorite here is the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants. Because this phrase captures this desire for authenticity. I didn't choose this. This is me. What can we say to that? The heart wants what it wants. But this phrase, most of us, I don't think, know who popularized it. There's a guy named Woody Allen. You know Woody Allen? He directs movies. Um, and in the 90s, he was doing an interview for Time magazine. So he sits down with a reporter. The reporter's asking him about his life. And then he asks him about his romantic life. I don't know if you know this about Woody Allen, but he had this long relationship with this really famous celebrity actress and model. And that actress and model had her own adopted children. And so he's functionally like the stepdad of those kids. Uh, years into their relationship, they kind of hit, they go on the rocks. And then um, his, his girlfriend's name, um, is it Mia Farrow? Anybody? Okay. Yes, somebody says yes, Mia Farrow. She comes into his house and she sees nude photos of her daughter, her adopted daughter, on his fireplace mantle. And it turns out that Woody Allen is sleeping with his girlfriend's daughter. He is, I think at the time, 56 years old, and she is 21 years old. He's been functioning as her stepdad. Why did you do this, the interviewer asked. The heart wants what it wants. He went on to marry Sun Yi. And when he did, I mean, it's complicated. Let's see. A dad became a brother-in-law. And a sister became a stepmom. Isn't this a little strange? The heart wants what it wants. You see, but can our hearts be trusted? The scripture says that our, our hearts, they pursue, they go after. They set the trajectory of our life. But our hearts are broken. Because of the ways that we've been sinned against. Because of the fallen world that we live in. Our hearts are not reliable guides. Our sexual desires are not reliable guides for our identities. Now, in the 90s, that was okay. That was celebrated. Post Me Too, most people look at that, and even progressive people today on, on sexual ethics just cringe. The heart wants what it wants? No. Because our strongest desires are not actually our deepest desires. You do you is really bad advice, I think. We're, we're just not reliable enough. Our sexual identities are not our deepest identities. Christ is your life. So put the idols to death. Paul says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. That means that discipleship to Jesus is the way to become you. Discipleship to Jesus, sexually and otherwise, is the way to become who you were made to be. Your true self is found not by looking into yourself, but by denying yourself. And taking up your cross and following him. All right, second case study. You ready for it? Ethnicity. This is actually straight where Paul, he goes here. 
Um, go ahead and go to the passage. He says, but now you, you were this. This is the way you once lived, but now something has happened. You must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. And then go on, read. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language. Put it away from your lips. And he says, don't lie to each other. Now, you may be thinking, what does this have to do with ethnicity? Have you ever seen a racist person talk about uh, another ethnic group? It's that, right? <laughs> it's the sense of superiority that's expressed in derision. And so I don't think it's an accident, and one of my favorite commentators, his name is N.T. Wright, he says that the distinctions that show up later in verse 10 and in verse 11, he says it's, it's those that provide the best soil for mutual suspicion and distrust. Mutual suspicion and distrust? This is directly connected to the question of ethnicity that shows up later. He says, these divisions were of great importance in the ancient world. The ancient world, just like the modern, was an elaborate network of prejudice and suspicion and arrogance. And so ingrained that it was thought to be natural and normal. And Paul says, you have to get rid of it. Go on to uh, verse 11. And so Paul says, in contrast, but now, now with the new self. He says, the new self doesn't just inform who you are. The new self informs the whole new humanity. It's not just an individual thing. It's a it's a collective community of God's people. This isn't just me. It's a, it's a we. Here's the we. There's no Gentile. Actually, in Greek, the word is Greek. There's no, there's no Hellenist. There's no Greek-speaking person here. There's no Jew. There's no circumcised. There's no uncircumcised. Now, Jews and Greeks, they would look down on each other. They would be like, you Jews. And the Jews would look at them and say, you Greeks. They would say, y'all are circumcised. And they would say, you're uncircumcised. They would call each other those names. And it's like, guys, y'all are, you probably need to get more creative with your, because it's just descriptive. Like, yes, they're the uncircumcision. Uh, yes, they are the circumcision. But they're looking down on each other. But then he throws in a few more, and these are fairly uncommon in the New Testament. He says, the barbarian. This is a non-Greek speaker. They say bar, bar, bar. And so it's an onomatopoeia. I mean, I'm not making this up. This is an onomatopoeia that just means people who don't speak Greek. It's just kind of a, a slander word for people who are uneducated or they live over there on the other side of the border. And then the Scythian. The Scythian is, you know where Crimea and Ukraine are? You, you've probably seen them on a map fairly recently. You've got the Black Sea and then Scythia is just the, the area north of there. This is where everybody goes to get slaves. And so then he says, slave or free. There's none of those distinctions anymore. You may be thinking, well, aren't there still distinctions? Let's talk through that. That's the next case study that I think is worth kind of a little deeper reflection. Um, I don't, there's a, an author I really like named Esau Macaulay. He's a, a black New Testament scholar who wrote a book a couple of years ago called Reading While Black. But this month, Black History Month, he had an article in the New York Times that was uh, really engaging. And he says one of the, the purposes of Black History Month is not just to celebrate the accomplishments of black people, he says one of the, the purposes of Black History Month is to expose kind of the lie of the cultural narrative to show that we, this isn't true, that the American dream wasn't a dream for everybody. Um, let me, here's what he says. Black history offers America a chance to see itself both as what we have failed to become and what we wish ourselves to be. 
America seeing itself clearly is the first step toward owning and then learning from its mistakes. But Macaulay is a believer. And so he doesn't just want this to happen in America. He wants it to happen in the church. And in the church, we have to do some reckoning with the history of racism in our culture, in our, in our history, in our fellowships, in our, in our groups. It's just tragic to see the ways that especially in, in my circle, white Protestant people have excluded other races and ethnic groups and social classes. But isn't Paul saying that none of those matter anymore? There's no distinction? Well, yes, in one sense, Macaulay, he was writing on this. He says, being a Jew doesn't make you more of an heir to the promises of Christ. Yes. But then he also says, but it's become commonplace now to say things, he says, some white Christians have even begun to claim that they do not see color. Now, I'm literally colorblind. So if you hear me describing myself as colorblind, that's what I mean. Not, not this. The colorblind interpretation of Paul cuts against the grain of his entire ministry. He says, if you just look at Paul, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. It's an ethnic distinction. He's saying, I'm Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a Pharisee. He's claiming ethnic distinctions throughout his entire ministry. And because of the ways that he's uniquely characterized in his own ethnicity, God uses those unique gifts to, to reach different people. So uh, Macaulay, he's kind of reflecting on the, just the big biblical vision. He says, at the end, when we look at all the nations and the tribes and the tongues and the languages, he says, we do not find the elimination of difference. Instead, the very diversity of cultures is a manifestation of God's glory. God's, his vision for the reconciliation of all things in his son requires, this is Macaulay, remember, it requires my blackness and my neighbor's Latina identity to endure forever. Colorblindness is sub-biblical and falls short of the glory of God. So what we see is that the Bible confirms the legitimacy of standard identity markers, but never their ultimacy. Christ is your life. But the, the really beautiful thing that starts happening is that if Christ is your life, what we start seeing is Christ in my, my brother Jermaine, in his blackness. And my, my brother Zach, right behind him, in his whiteness. And, and my wife Kelsey here, in her femaleness. And me, in my Texanness. Is that a thing? I would like for it to be. We bring that into the body of Christ and it adds into the diversity and the glory of God's kingdom. And st we start seeing, oh, that's what it looks like to be Christ in you. In, in Colossians, he says, Christ in you is the hope of glory. That's what we're aiming for. That is identity. It's not, how can everybody become like me? Or even, how can everybody become like Jesus? Now, bear with me just for a second. Instead, it's how can Jesus show up in me? As me, with my background and my gifts, what would it look like for Christ in me to be the hope of glory? Does, it, does that, am I making any sense? I didn't hear any amen, so. Uh, okay, all right, there we go. Marcus, count on you, thank you. And so what we see is the renewed identity, it reorders I, traditional kind of modern identity markers and um, traditional identity markers. This is your family, your children, your job, your nation, your race, Christ is life. And it looks in us, 
And it says, your desires, your wants, who, who you see yourself, it lowers those. And it says, Christ is life. And then it uses this phrase, Christ is all and is in all. Isn't that beautiful? That Christ is all. Christ is your life. Oh, but I get to see Christ in you. Last question. I'll, I'll make this quick. How do I grow a gospel identity? Um, mostly my answer today is, I can't wait to talk more about that another time. <laughs> um, this, this, is, this is what we're going to be about. About walking together in solidarity and vulnerability. True authenticity where we confess sin to one another and we step into who we really are and who God says we are. And by the grace of God in one another, we can step into our, our secure, strong, confident identities as we can sing and as we did today, I am who God says I am. I am who you say I am. The other short answer is that worship. <laughs> How do we grow a gospel that need worship? Um, quickly, verse 12. He says, we are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. You see how it's received, not achieved. This is where we start with identity. We start with God chose you. He has made you holy in the Holy One Jesus. And he dearly loves you. Don't look out. Don't look in. Look up. Remember the baptism of Jesus? He looks up and he hears the voice of his father. And the Father says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's identity. That's where it starts. And so identity, growth, looks like just rehearsing that in confession, in prayer, and in worship. Over and over and over until it seeps into our souls. It does not, identity does not grow through duty. It does not go through performance. It goes through an experience of the grace of God through the gospel of King Jesus. Okay. Uh, let me, let me sk skip to the end. All right. I don't even know what time it is, but I know I've been talking. So, um, I've been asking, how can I stand? Elsa says, here I stand. Uh, there's a, a famous Protestant reformer 500 years ago named Martin Luther. You don't know this, but Elsa's actually quoting Martin Luther in that song. Seriously. He's called before the Holy Roman Emperor. He's, he's been writing about Scripture. He says, Scripture is our ultimate guide, not, not papal authority. He's been writing about the doctrine of justification by faith. And he's, he says, you cannot buy your salvation. You cannot do it. We are justified by faith alone, by grace alone. And now he's gotten called to the principal's office. The Holy Roman Emperor is putting him on trial. And they say, will you recant? And he says, here I stand. I can do no other. On scripture and on justification, on the basis of what Jesus Christ has won for us at the cross. Here I stand, I can do no other. You know the, the old hymn? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand.
Would you stand? I want to bless you with words from Ephesians. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Amen.